Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And our special guest today is Ilya Shapiro. He's the Cato Institute's director for their Center for Constitutional Studies. He also has a book that has come out recently, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Because this week, I know it's not advisory opinions, but we've got to talk about the Supreme Court. Let's dive in. Ilya Shapiro, thrilled to have you on. We'll get to why you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt later. But first, so the President of the United States tweeted this morning, uh, uh, now that the Biden administration will be a scandal-plagued mess for years to come, it is much easier for the Supreme Court of the United States to follow the Constitution and do what everybody knows has to be done. They must show great courage and wisdom. Save the USA. What do you think the Supreme Court's actually going to do in this case? Before we even get to the details of the case. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, Sarah, uh, uh, good to be on the uh, the flagship dispatch uh, podcast. Been promoted, done uh, advisory opinion, the remnant, <laughs> finally the, the big kahuna here. Speaking of my Hawaiian shirt, and I have many, by the way, for my sojourn here in, uh, in Daytona Beach uh, for the rest of the month with my family because the remedy for 2020 is apparently spring break 1984. Nice. But anyway, uh, getting back to the question at hand, I don't think the Supreme Court will do anything with this. I think they will decline to take up what's called an original jurisdiction case. That is, when uh, a state sues another state, that goes directly to the Supreme Court, uh, and the court can decide whether to take up the case. In fact, in theory, the Supreme Court is the trial court when states sue other states. And what happens then, it's not like we have a jury trial with the justices there in the uh, marble uh, uh, palace or what have you. They, they appoint a special master who takes evidentiary hearings, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, that's, uh, that's all too much in the weeds because uh, this case, I think, is more of a political or PR statement than it is a real uh, uh, lawsuit. I mean, it's, it's better done. The, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. We don't have uh, all sorts of uh, Kraken-related uh, typos and you know in, improper filings and, and so forth. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I can't see the Supreme Court taking this up. Is there any merit to the standing issue of why uh, Texas gets to sue Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia? Yeah, it's a dubious standing theory. In fact, in other circumstances, Texas would be uh, foremost on the other side saying, why are these other states trying to tell Texas how we run our elections or whatever? Um so it, it definitely is a, an unusual procedural posture. That's probably why the Texas Solicitor General, Kyle Hawkins, his name does not appear on the filing. That's, uh, that's important because the, the SG, the Solicitor General for, for the state, is supposed to represent the state before the Supreme Court and other prominent tribunals. And here, the embattled Attorney General, Ken Paxton, uh, had to hire a, a quote-unquote special counsel uh, to do this. So um, yeah, very unusual scenario. A bunch of states have jumped on that, of course, and now over 100 congressmen have filed an amicus brief. But this is, this is as I said, more of a political posturing or a, or a press release. I mean, for Ken Paxton, for the Texas AG, it might be, uh, you know, trying to ask for a pardon from the president for that matter. You know, I don't want to question people's motives too much, but just on the legal analysis, you're right. The standing is, uh, you know, before you even get to the merits of of whether the the the, the swing states' uh, uh, electoral processes are are corrupted, uh, one state simply cannot sue another state for 
how they uh, how they do things. I would just say as a Texan, by the way, that it is a foundational value that other states can't tell us what to do. Like, <laughs> don't mess with Texas is kind of premised on that whole thing, Steve. Yeah. Can can we take a step back uh, a, a bit? Can you Ilya, can you just tell us what is Texas? What's their argument? What's the case here? Well, there are four states that are being sued, and I'm not about to name them because I'll, I'm just sure to uh, leave out one of them. Uh, They're like all Rick swing Perry states, trying to name, not coincidentally. Right, like Rick Perry trying to name cabinet departments, but uh, speaking of Texas. Um, but the, the theory is that there are defects in the way that various electoral procedures were enacted and implemented uh, with this election, uh, notably that uh, state executives or state judiciaries changed uh, in kind of a moving target last minute situation because of the pandemic, because of uh, late lawsuits and what have you. Uh, the, so the, the, the judiciaries and the executive branches of those states changed their various procedures in violation of the constitutional provision that says state legislatures uh, uh, dictate the time, place, and manner of uh, their elections. And so Texas is saying that uh, because of those violations of state law, you know, changing the, the procedures, not, not, through, not legislatively, that hurts Texas because those swing states, uh, their, you know, their electors now go to Biden, whereas otherwise they would go to the candidate that Texas supports, Donald Trump. And what's the best evidence of this? Did, did this, in fact, happen as Texas alleges? I mean, it, it could well be uh, that uh, some of the uh, claims uh, of, of how rules were changed in, in different states uh, were done improperly, either as a matter of state law, state constitutional law. There's a very serious meritorious claim in Pennsylvania in which the Supreme Court, a couple of weeks before the election, you might recall, it seems like uh, a lifetime ago, we've gone through several lifetimes this year, I think, but anyway, before the election, the courts uh, uh, deadlocked four to four on whether to uh, stop the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's rewriting of its election laws to take uh, to accept ballots that were uh, received uh, after the election and even those which were not postmarked. Um, and had the election come down to just Pennsylvania uh, and had the number of ballots in play, apparently is about 10,000 or so, had that been greater than the margin in Pennsylvania, then it would have been a Bush v. Gore type situation regarding that kind of claim. But because there are so many different kinds of claims across multiple states, um, you know, it's at this point, it's too little too late, which actually brings in a separate doctrine uh, called latches. I don't know why everything has to be complicated with lawyers, but there's a doctrine called latches, L-A-C-H-E-S, uh, which means that you can't uh, kind of get a second bite at the apple. Sue beforehand, get all this stuff clarified beforehand. Don't wait to see whether the outcome pleases you uh, and then try to get it uh, uh, reversed. So undoubtedly, there are some uh, tweaks to state law, which if I were a judge, I might say that contravenes either the state constitution, maybe the federal. That's a more complicated issue about when do federal courts intervene uh, on state reinterpretations of their own law, when the state law changes, uh, 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 when are they so egregious that they rise to a level to a federal constitutional violation? But anyway, um, you know, to, regardless of whether there are any uh, granular uh, uh, meritorious legal claims here in any particular states, it's too little, too late. 
they don't affect the tens of thousands of uh, vote margins in each state. And so even though it's a close election, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court is not going to, you know, seeing that it's it's not going to offer the the thermonuclear remedy of reversing the election or, or changing the state electors in the particular swing states. Um, that along with standing, along with laches, all of these different reasons is why it is almost certainly going to not take up the case. And by the way, if it doesn't take up the case, it won't give its reasons. It won't go through, you know, what we've just kind of gone back and forth in a, right. in a more, you know, legalistic detail or what have you. It'll just say, you know, decline to take up the case. By the, but, but the, you know, what's, what's interesting, a, re, a reporter asked me yesterday what should happen. You know, there is an argument to be made that it might be better for the health of our, um, our, our republic going forward, or at least for the next four years, the perception of legitimacy for the Supreme Court to take it up and unanimously then slap it down either on the merits or on standing or something. That might be healthier. But I can't see the court. That, that's less likely than, than, than the court just not taking it because it, it doesn't want to play games in that way. Is just one last simple question. What is Texas seeking to do here? What what's the, what's the optimal outcome from the perspective of Ken Paxton or the 106 Republicans in Congress who signed on to this or the other states who joined? What are they what uh, do they do they make a specific request? What are they actually trying to do? They're asking the Supreme Court to rule that the electoral methods in these four states are constitutionally corrupted and therefore the state legislatures of these states uh, should be authorized to appoint electors. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor today. Acton Line Podcast. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, visit acton.org slash dispatch or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's Acton dot org slash dispatch to subscribe. You mentioned that you don't think the court will take case, but, and I, I think I would have agreed with you entirely when the initial case was filed by Ken Paxton, but we now have this brief from uh, 17 states Missouri, led by Missouri coming in as amicus, friend of the court, saying that the court should take the case. We have 106 congressmen. None of those really go to the merits, none of them would maybe in normal times even affect the Supreme Court taking the case. But do you think this time is different at all? What, if anything, effect do, do those things have? Well, it's an unprecedented situation, so it's it's hard to hard to know, really. Um, I, I think the 16 states coming in, that it's 16 states, not just a couple, I think is significant. Um, and I think it's 16 plus Missouri. Okay, so seventeen, sure. Um, that that m- might, at the margin, make it more likely that the court takes it up and um, you know says there's no standing or says it's a political question or something like that, rather than just the one line 
uh, declined for lack of a substantial federal question, which is what the 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 ruling or not the ruling, but just the procedural uh, decision might be. What's interesting is I don't know if you saw this in a, because I, I'm not up on my latest advisory opinion podcast, unfortunately. But uh, in addition to the the amicus brief by the 17 states. Uh, there is a motion to intervene uh, and to kind of become plaintiffs as well. And that is not joined by 17. I think that's only four or five at this point. Uh, and so you can see there, so there are about a dozen states are happy to kind of issue effectively a press release saying, yeah, go Texas. But when the rubber meets the road of actually putting your name down as endorsing in full the legal theory, uh, many fewer. Which is kind of interesting to me because I think this whole thing came about because Ted Cruz offered to argue the Pennsylvania case, which he knew the court was never going to take. And so it was like, I think, seen as this kind of brilliant no-lose press release by Ted Cruz. And so then the Texas case gets filed and all these states are like, ooh, we can do the same thing. And then all these congressmen said, ooh, we can do the same thing. But I think it has a much more pernicious effect as it snowballs down the hill and you have nearly half of the states and half of the Republicans in Congress validating this. I agree with that. And uh, Ted, uh, you know, Ted Cruz's uh, <laughs> press release offered to argue a case that because he's a smart guy and, and you know, knows very well how the Supreme Court operates, knew that there was no chance in, in hell that they were going to take that case. And so he could make that empty promise to argue it. Now a little more uh, delicate sort of situation. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, again, it doesn't help not the legitimacy of our government, of our election, but the perceived legitimacy, which is equally important because at the end of the day, um, you know, in, in such contentious, polarized times with low level of low levels of social trust, uh, we knew that whoever lost this election, a fair number of their supporters was not going to accept uh, the result and kind of keeping on fanning these flames. And in a sense, with the states and the congressmen now getting involved, that that steps up those. Uh, well, I'm mixing my metaphors, but anyway, the you know, the conflagrates even further the the the. Um, the damage to the perceived legitimacy, because at the end of the day, you know, having all these state attorney generals, even on the amicus brief, uh, let alone the intervention, um, you know, get out there on this, that is, uh, and, and rightly so, considered more serious than the crack in lawsuits and, and, you know, Rudy Giuliani's machinations and things like that. And just a shout out also, I mean, you know that Chip Roy is a friend of, of me and Scott's, and he is and Scott's former boss, because Chip Roy was Ted Cruz's former chief of staff. He is now in Congress, and he put out this long thread on Twitter about why he didn't join those 106 members of Congress about this lawsuit, even though he is, you know, a great attorney and a fan of the president's, basically saying, this lawsuit is meritless, and I will not join it as a press release. Uh, and of course, the most predictable thing, right, he is being attacked for not being conservative enough and yada, yada. And it's turned into this real, I think, divide in the Republican Party. And I think will be for some time to come of which side of this fight uh, you as a Republican were on. Sorry, Steve, I think you were. No, no. Up. I mean, uh, just I'll add a little reporting to that in conversations that I've had since the, the House letter dropped with 106 House Republicans signing on to this. It's very clear that there is a stark divide in the House Republican conference and that the, you know, the people who, many of the people who signed on, and I don't, I, I tried to get some estimate of how many this applies to, but a good chunk of the people who signed on 
understand fully what Ilya has just laid out here, that this is totally unserious, that it's a, a silly legal argument, and they're doing it simply to appease the president and appeal to the base. And many of them did so in response to a letter that Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana sent in which he said, we will let the president know who's on this letter. Not that he actually had to let the president know who's on the letter. I'm sure the president was very keen on finding out and was in fact making phone calls to some of these House members trying to get them to sign this letter. Um, but my sense is that the, there, there is a growing sense this early that, that the letter may have backfired uh, for some of those House Republicans because the people who, are, who didn't sign are furious at the way that this went down and pissed that the, the Republican conference is now being smeared, broadly, is now being smeared with this association with something that is so sort of on its face ludicrous. Uh, and and at back. the point where, and at the point where the Republicans came within a whisker of taking back the house, defying all uh, yeah. expectations, you know, within, you know, five seats now, uh, you know, given the, the couple of machinations there. Um, yeah, uh, actually that, that I, I wanted to ask you, Steve, since you've been doing that reporting, cause, and I haven't gone through the whole list of, of the signers. Uh, I knew about Chip Roy and I was heartened to see that because, uh, uh yeah, you know, he, he just eked out a narrow win. Well, uh, broader than expected, but still fairly narrow win over Wendy Davis, and uh, uh, you know is 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 a respected, you know, uh, thoughtful guy. Um, but but Steve, uh, are there any surprises for you of who signed the letter or who didn't sign the letter? This was this was one of the things that that everybody was texting and calling around furiously. Hundred, I think everybody was surprised that it was one hundred and six. You know, I think that there there had been this behind the scenes scramble to get people to sign this sort of started by this letter that Mike Johnson, newly elected uh, vice chair of the House Republican Conference, had sent out saying, you need to get on this. We're going to let the president know who's on this. He did this with this was not a something that was approved by House leadership. Um, and then there was this this sort of uh, scramble behind the scenes to get people on board and hard, hard pushback by the people who didn't want to sign. And in, in, in right in the aftermath, I was texting with a number of members of Congress and, and others who, who were, we were all comparing our lists of surprises. And I would say the surprises for me, Kathy McMorris Rogers, who generally cultivated a reputation of being somewhat moderate, reasonably thoughtful, had been in leadership. Um, uh, Michael Waltz, who's uh, actually a congressman from Daytona Beach, uh, right in your area, somebody who worked for vice president. Dick Cheney has been thought of as a uh, thoughtful, hawkish voice on national security issues, um, has been increasingly supportive of the president over these last couple months uh, leading up to the election. Um, Mike Conaway, um, Republican from uh, Texas, who was at one time the uh, interim chair of the House Intelligence Committee, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, there were a handful of members like that. What was also surprising to me, Steve Scalise, um, is the number two in the House Republican Conference. The, the only member of leadership to sign, I think. With Mike Johnson, who pushed right. the letter, who is now the vice chair. It, very interesting to me was that Kevin McCarthy was not on the letter. I mean, we've seen Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, do everything possible to be of service to the president of the United States, um, you know, in, including pushing uh, or, or announcing that he was open to voting to 
support the president on his threatened veto of the National Defense Authorization Act just this past week, um, based on a, a flawed understanding of this Section 230 that we've spent a lot of time talking about as it relates to uh, to platforms and speech. Um, but Kevin McCarthy did not sign. Uh, very interesting that that he, as as we would say, even Kevin McCarthy uh, thought this was not a, a a very wise political move. Um, let me let me if I can just follow up on the legitimacy question that that uh, both of you were were talking about because I think it's such an important point. And I think obviously to me this is sort of the the the, the culmination of endless questions of, of legitimacy, specifically as it relates to the courts that President Trump's rhetoric has brought to the fore. And I wonder, Ilya, what you think of this idea. I mean, I think, let's say you're, you're somebody who doesn't follow, you know, every decision of the Supreme Court. You, you don't know federal courts. You don't know appeals courts from other courts. You don't, you're not a, a constitutional You're a normal scholar. You read person. This stuff, you read this stuff in the newspapers. You're a normal person. The president has spent several years now talking about the judiciary as sort of his team. And, you know, I mean, he's very open about why he wanted to put Amy Coney Barrett on the court, said, you know, I might need her, in effect. There could be something uh, when the election's disputed, I might need her. And, you know, on, on the one hand, that stuff is, is easy to dismiss because it's so foreign to how kind of serious thinkers treat treat these issues on the other hand the more that he says it the more that i think it fits a, a growing perception particularly on the center right of what the courts are meant to do and you know con- conservatives libertarians might look at what democrats have done over the years and say well that's how they played the game so now it's time that we play it this way am i am i being um you know, alarmist about this? Am I too concerned about this or is there something there to be worried about? I think actually, I mean, that's right what you say, but probably the dynamic is going the other way, meaning that his statements convince more on the left that uh, the judges that he's appointed really are in his pocket and, you know, kind of politicizing the judiciary uh, uh, in that way, even though, as we've seen in the various post-election lawsuits, there have been no shortage, not just of Republican appointed, by Trump appointed judges who have ruled against him in both right. the district and, Important, the, I think. and the circuit yeah. courts. Um, for that matter, uh, uh, Gorsuch and, and, and Kavanaugh ruled against him on the, uh, the House subpoenas and the Manhattan DA subpoenas cases last term. Um, you know, the, the, the evidence is there. If you want to look at it, uh, you know, the judiciary or at least Trump appointees are not politicized in that way. But by talking as if they were, he is doing uh, reputational damage or legitimacy damage. And uh, I should say, this is kind of going beyond what you just said, but you know, to the extent that the election was close because a surprising number of people who don't like Trump, but were scared by the crazy Democratic Party, uh, nevertheless voted for him, he is probably damaging long-term the Republican Party brand by what he's saying post-election as much, if not more, as the previous four years of what happened, uh, just because this this stuff really is, you know, there is no benefit to it. You're, you know, the judges, the deregulation, whatever you might have liked, you know, not being the Democrats with their Green New Deal and everything else, you know, this stuff is not necessary to make that happen. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think the last month 
the, the the president's rhetoric, some of his um, you know political appointees support uh, you know statements and all that uh, have held, have have harmed uh, perceptions of the judiciary, whether from the right or from the left. We can debate that, uh, and also the um, this continuing battle, you know, continuing split of the Republican Party. Uh, they just won't let the Democrats continue to um, have their own circular firing squad between the, the progressives and the, and the moderates and what have you. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Ilya, last question. I know you're on your way to the Johnson Space Center with your family today. The Kennedy Space Center. We're in Florida, not Houston. Freudian, perhaps. Uh, so here's my question to you. <laughs> but, by you the way, give- by the way, uh, I don't know if you saw this Twitter meme where, 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 well, Trump said that, you know, no president has, you know, I won Florida and Ohio and no president has ever won without winning Florida and Ohio. And I saw people bringing up Kennedy, which I thought was not the good, the best example in response to that, because, of course, Kennedy only won because of fraud in Illinois and Texas. But anyway, <laughs> uh, if you were offered the opportunity to be one of the first people to travel to Mars, would you take it? Um, they, they desperately need a constitutional lawyer on the trip <laughs> to set up the rule of law on Mars. Is Ilya going to do his duty? Well, uh, look, one of the shows that my wife and I binged uh, during the pandemic is Away on Netflix, which involves... Uh, um, uh, travel to Mars, but basically the, the people it's, you know, it's unsure they might get killed. Plus it's like three years away from, from their family. So at this point with my kids being so little and, you know, I really wouldn't want to take that time away from my family. And if they engineered some way where you can take your family and there's hollow decks and full education and all of that, you know, maybe, maybe something like that. But at, at this point, I'm, I don't know, I'd have to, I'd have to see what the terms of the offer really are and what the safety <laughs> measures are and the probability of returning home alive and all of that sort of thing. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. Spoken like a true lawyer wants to see the fine print. Uh, it sounds like the rule of law will need another advocate on Mars. Uh, Steve, do you go? They need a, a reporter. Sure. I'll give it a shot. 
<laughs> Why not? Steve I'd like to bring my hand. family too. I mean, all of the things that Ilya well, said well, about my Steve, family. Steve would need kids, to inquire. You know. Steve would need to inquire about the uh, the chicken wings in the galley on the spaceship going over. There's right. no question about that. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> my husband informed me recently that he would be heading to Mars if given the opportunity, and I was like, "Wait a second, that feels like a family conversation." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think l- let me be clear about about the agreeing to the the stipulation that Ilya mentioned. I would have to bring my family. I would want to bring my family. I would not leave my family. But if we could arrange that, uh, maybe we could uh, live next door to the Shapiros. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dispatch listeners. Thank you, Ilya, for joining us. Have fun with your family today. Thank you. Take care. 